One day, a patient was admitted into neurologist Dr. Jan Klaassen's care in the ICU, a young woman who'd suffered a sudden brain hemorrhage. She seemed completely unresponsive, but her family had a gut feeling. They thought, she's in there. Now, this kind of wishful thinking is common for families of people who suffer sudden brain trauma. So for a lot of physicians, it would be easy to brush off. But Dr. Clausen did not. And as it turns out, the family was right. I'm Katherine Price, and this is Advances in Care. Dr. Clausen is chief of the Division of Critical Care and Hospitalist Neurology at New York Presbyterian Columbia. He's leading the way in detecting a phenomenon called covert consciousness in the ICU, helping physicians and families to reimagine what patient care should look like in the early days after a brain trauma. Today on Advances in Care, Dr. Clausen tells us the story of his groundbreaking study on cognitive motor dissociation and his hopes for how we'll communicate with these patients in the future. I'm so excited to speak with you today. Yeah, me too. I'm always really curious about how people got to do what they do today. So can you tell me a bit about your personal background and how this interest began? Uh, towards sort of the second part of uh, my medical school training, there was an opportunity to get involved in research. And I was looking around for a research project. And I had this longstanding interest in understanding human consciousness. And by coincidence, I stumbled across this investigator that wanted to do a study in patients with traumatic brain injury um, that wanted to find better ways to predict how they would do long-term wise. So who would recover and who wouldn't. And so I was this young medical student, got very eager and interested, got in first day in the ICU. And they told me, end of the hallway is your patient, you can do your study. A week later, part of the study was we followed up with the patient and wanted to see how they did. And so I came back to the ICU and I asked them, where's this this young patient? This was a 20-year-old patient that had a rollerblading accident, fell on the back of his head and had a big hemorrhage and big trauma. And so I asked them, where where is he? And in my mind, it was like, the patient isn't here anymore. He died. This is all a waste. What am I doing here? And they said, actually, no, you have to go one floor up. And he's actually on the regular floor. And so I went upstairs and this patient was actually in the common room playing cards with um, other patients. And he had fully recovered. And when when I saw that, that just triggered this response in me where I was like, this is what I want to dedicate my life to. I really want to figure out about recovery of consciousness, about recovery and of these sickest patients that that you can imagine. What was it about that particular moment that made you realize, oh my goodness, this is actually what I want to study? I think part of it was that I sort of was so surprised myself that I really honestly didn't believe that this patient had a chance of recovery. If he had a chance of recovery, he would recover in a very, very poor state. And the opposite was true. He was basically back to normal. And to see this differential in between complete hopelessness and then somebody where you can give them back to their family, back into a normal life, was just incredibly inspiring to me. Huh. And so you were saying you've always been interested in consciousness. I'm wondering if you can tell me a bit more about what you mean by that. It's a really great question. So what is consciousness, right? Actually, honestly, when if you really think about it, it's very, very difficult to define. And if you read philosophers, 
everybody actually talks about something different. And some say it's just too complicated to even define it. Or, you know, <laughs> it's like it's like maybe it's all an illusion. And I mean, maybe that's true, right? When when I think when I talk about consciousness, it's something much more practical. I mean, I talk to you and I we have a conversation, you respond, and I assume mm. that you're conscious. And that's how consciousness typically in very practical, in a practical sense, is conceptualized. <laughs> so you mean basically to have having like a understanding coupled with a reaction is how you're kind yeah. of pragmatically defining it? And typically by a motor reaction, right? Oh, by the motor okay. response. So typically you ask in, in a very clinical sense, you ask somebody to do something. You know, in the ICU, for example, we ask a patient to stick out your tongue or show us two fingers. If they do it, we assume that they're conscious. If they don't, we don't think that they're conscious. Gotcha. So can you can you tell me a little bit about how consciousness has been understood within medicine historically? So disorders of consciousness have been known for a long, long time. The the word coma is a is a Greek word. And so they mm. describe this state of a deep sleep that somebody could not be awakened up from. Okay. I think a big sort of impetus for development of coma science has been really from the polio epidemic, where a lot oh. of people lost the ability to breathe on their own. And um, so that actually started the development of ventilators. And before that, patients in an unresponsive state just didn't survive. So you, oh. there was actually very little known about um, a survival in an unconscious state. And then I would say in the 60s, there were critical care advancements that came around that mm -hmm. allowed sort of the, the application of ventilators also for other patients. Mm -hmm. And what some very, very astute uh, neurologists and neurosurgeons observed in the 1960s, like in Plum and Posner, for example, um, who are um, here at Cornell, it was this state where if you so, uh, supported these patients for a while, some of them actually started to open their eyes, but they were unresponsive. So this huh. was called the vegetative state. So they, the heart rate was functioning, the respiration, but they opened their eyes, but there was no consciousness, no interaction with the examiner. I see. And locked-in syndrome is a um, state that was also first sort of really clearly defined by Plum and Posner. Basically, it's a state where patients have lost much of their motor function, but they're fully conscious. Oh. And so... Many times those patients are actually misdiagnosed as being in a coma because if you, unless you do a very careful exam, you don't detect this blinking or the eye movement, the vertical eye movement. Oh, I see. But if you go back in the literature, probably a state like that was already described by Alexander Dumas in The Count of Monte Cristo, where really? he basically describes a... Um, a character that looked like a corpse, but, but with living eyes. These states are not new, just our ways of describing them, our, our ways of ability to detect them has changed. Mm. And thereby we can, we can clearly potentially study them and um, see how those patients do long-term wise. So speaking of our ability to detect these states, I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about the... Adrian Owen's study that I believe was very inspirational to you. Yeah, so Adrian Owen um, is a psychologist and um, he did a study, he published it in Science in 2006, and he studied um, a young woman and she had had a traumatic brain injury, a car accident. And this was months and months before, like six months or so. 
And she was in a vegetative state. So she was in this state where she opened her eyes, but she had no interaction with the, uh, with the examiners. Okay. So when you asked her, um, you know, do something, she wouldn't, wouldn't do anything at all. And so he put her in a functional MRI scanner. And in a functional MRI scanner, you can actually visualize brain function. So you ask somebody, tap your finger, and then you uh, say, stop tapping your finger. By contrasting these two states, you can visualize the brain area that's engaged when you're tapping the finger. Mm -hmm. so he said, imagine playing tennis. And then he said, imagine walking through your apartment. Hmm. And you have to, to understand that playing tennis activates a very different part of the brain. So it activates, it's a lot of hand and arm move, movement are involved. And so a lateral part of the motor homunculus is engaged. Whereas uh -huh. walking through your apartment requires a lot of engagement of of spatial um, orientation. Okay. And so he asked the patient, imagine playing tennis, imagine walking through an apartment, and did the same with a group of healthy volunteers. And to everybody's surprise, this patient that had been unresponsive to any commands, not doing anything at all, activated almost the same areas as healthy volunteers. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so basically that's that's this state, he called it covert consciousness back then. Okay. And it basically indicates that there's some consciousness that was sort of hidden from the surface. And I think cognitive motor dissociation um, is probably the term that is most widely used now, basically okay. signifying that the cognition is better than what you, by just examining the patient, that the motor response would suggest. I see. But clearly she was able to willfully modulate her brain activity to these commands. Hmm. So tell me about your personal response to this uh, paper. Do you remember where you were when you first heard of it or read it or what your reaction was? Yeah, I, I, I remember this practicing as a, a young uh, neurointensivist or even in training as a neurologist that um, sometimes you go to the bedside and you had this gut feeling, there's, there's more there. I don't know, I can't, couldn't really put it into words. And sometimes, really? you know, you talk to the family and they're, they're like, no, we think grandma is in there or, you know, my wife, I think she's actually there. And so you're asking me, what did, do I remember when I read that paper? And I, I remember that I was reading and I was like, wouldn't it be great if we could tell whether those patients in the ICU were in this state of cognitive oh. Maybe that's actually what the families described. Maybe that's actually this gut feeling that I'm, I'm feeling myself, right? Hmm. And I thought, we should think about a study where we study patients that have acute brain injury mm -hmm. um, and are un uh, unconscious and um, see whether we can identify any patient with cognitive motor dissociation. So why did you specifically want to study these patients who are in the acute early phase of injury? So when you're in the acute phase of injury, you can still modify the course. So mm. you can potentially change your treatment. If you look at how patients with traumatic brain injury that are unconscious, so many of them can recover. But if you look at the patients that die from acute brain injury, 75% of them die because of withdrawal of life-sustaining therapies. Wow, 75%. Yeah. Wow. So how does that happen? Typically after a set amount of time, like after a week, the physicians sit down with the family and they talk about the prognosis and the likely outcome. And then uh -huh. a decision is being made 
based on the assumption what the patient would want to do. Not what the family wants to do, not what the physician wants to do, but what the patient would want to do. Obviously, we can't ask the, ask the patient. So I, I thought that it would be fundamentally important to try to find out whether we can become, become better and more precise at predicting the ultimate outcome of these patients, because uh -huh. that would then feed into this goals of care discussion um, in, in the long term. Mm. And so actually, honestly, the, the time when this switched into something that could be actionable was when, uh, when a study came out that showed that you could potentially do this with EEG as well. So why was the ability to use EEG to monitor brain activity such a game changer uh, in terms of your ability to do this study in the ICU? So EEG has the advantage It's at the bedside. It can be done without transporting the patient. You know, there's, there's EEGs that are very research-oriented. They're called high-density EEG. They have hundreds of EEG electrodes. Intentionally, I wanted to use the sort of standard setup that we have available in any ICU. And so I thought the scalability would be much larger. When I Even when I first thought about this, I thought you have to develop something that's scalable because if mm -hmm. you can only do this in one center, the impact, the public health impact is not going to be big. I see. So pretty basic EEG. Very basic. So the EEG is able to have repeated assessments and it is important because behavioral states um, after acute brain injury, brain injury fluctuate. The recovery from the acute brain injury and the secondary worsening from complications, be it strokes, be it sepsis, be it pneumonia, urinary tract infection, all of that can affect your, your brain function. And so these complex interactions, if you just have one snapshot in time, it's going to be impossible to even know where you are there. Whereas if you have a repeated assessment and it goes boom, 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 boom up, then you know, then you can sort of put that into the context. Gotcha. So how did you design and carry out your study? So basically what, what, what we did is we used the EEG. We asked the patient, keep moving your right hand and just keep opening and closing your right hand. And then we said, stop opening and closing your right hand. Oh. And then we did the same with the left hand. Obviously, if they do open their hand, then they're not <laughs> unconscious, that's right? Pretty easy then to... they were out of the study. Right, exactly. <laughs> that was, that's, not, that's not what we're testing here. But while they are engaging or not engaging in trying to do this, we were recording the EG, I see. sort of time sync to that. And we did this over and over again. Uh, keep opening and closing your right hand. Stop opening and closing your right hand. And then basically what you do is you take the EEG that's recorded and you analyze the power in specific frequencies. So what does that mean? You have fast and slow waves in the EEG and you look at the power, the amplitude in specific frequency spectra. So How much power is there of slow waves? How much power is there of fast waves? And you look at that at each electrode mm -hmm. that you have on the head. And that generates a data set. And then basically this data set is analyzed with a machine learning algorithm. And the idea is very simple. The algorithm basically creates a line between these data sets and looks at whether the response to a move command compared to a stop moving command is systematically different. Hmm. And if it's systematically different, that means the brain reacted in a way to the move command differently to the stop moving command. Wow. 
So you're saying that if the patient's response to the two commands was discernibly different, then it meant that the patient had some level of consciousness. That's exactly right. That's exactly okay. right, yeah. So tell me what happened. <laughs> what were the results of this study? Yeah, it, it was, I, I remember this very, very, um, very well. It was a big surprise. I think we we did this for at least five, six years. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, the whole time we kept ourselves completely blinded to the results. So we certainly didn't tell the families. We didn't tell the physicians taking care of the patients, making any decisions. And we didn't know ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so when we had collected the first 100 patients, we said, we're going to look uh, is there anybody that has cognitive motor dissociation? And to our big surprise, actually, 15% of the patients had cognitive motor dissociation. What? So 15% doesn't sound a lot, but if you think about the number of patients that are in an unconscious state worldwide, it is millions, actually. And 15% of that is a huge number. So you're saying that of people who seem totally unresponsive that in the past might have had their life support pulled, I mean, perhaps even did in this circumstance, but might have just been thought to be hopeless. There actually were 15% showing some sign that they were conscious. Yeah, exactly. Only not behaviorally, right? right? So none of them showed any behavioral sign of consciousness, you know, and we don't know what their fate would have been. But I, uh, what we were surprised by is that, that this was such a high rate. So tell me about the moment when you unblinded yourself. I mean, where were you? What did you feel like? How did you respond? So first, we didn't believe it. We did a number of tests to assure that this was a real finding. There's a number of plausibility approaches that you uh, that you apply to the data. And the data stood. It, it actually remained. But what we wanted to see was, we wanted to see, does this have any meaning in predicting Um, the outcome of these patients. I mean, that makes sense because I guess even if you know they're in there, it doesn't necessarily mean they'll be able to come back. So how did you go about figuring that out? We had actually prospectively assessed this because that was uh, part of the study so that everybody was assessed at the same time. Okay. So we looked at three, six months, 12 months, and then three years. And what we found, first of all, which was shocking, that patients that had had covert consciousness had a much higher chance to recover behavioral features of consciousness before um, hospital discharge. And then even more important, when we looked a year after the injury, 44% of the patients with covert consciousness had functional recovery. Wow. Yeah, so we were able to show that independent of age, of the neurological deficits on admission to the hospital and the brain injury that they had, independent of that, we were able to predict time to recovery. Hmm. So the patients with cognitive motor dissociation recover earlier than the ones without cognitive motor dissociation. So is this a transitory state that we detect there that then predicts the recovery? Or is it a defined state that just associates with recovery? I understand you're saying this is not yet possible, but it seems like in the future, perhaps you would be able to identify the people who were the most likely to recover. And that might be a life or death piece of knowledge, right? In terms of, as you were saying, 75% of the people who die from these states is because we withdraw care. Yeah. Yeah. What we're trying Mm -hmm. to do right now is to Uh, take it to the next step and see whether we can scale this. Right now, we have a uh, study, uh, the reconfig study, where we are actually studying patients with brain hemorrhages. Yeah, tell me about that. 
So reconfig um, is an acronym that stands for recovery of consciousness following intracerebral hemorrhage. Um, the reason I have focused on that was that these patients have focal lesions where the injury is, but also diffuse injury. So it's a good sort of patient population to study the impact of brain injury on the ability to detect uh, covert consciousness. And we are studying this with regular and advanced MRI um, studies. So basically what we're looking at is getting an exact idea about the injury, where it occurs, and then also on the network effect. And by that, understand more about the mechanisms of what underlies covert consciousness. I think the idea is if we understand the mechanisms underlying covert consciousness, then we can better integrate it into our prognostic and therapeutic um, uh, approaches of treating these patients. And hmm. we uh, are enrolling not only here at, at uh, NYP Columbia, but also in Miami. Mm -hmm. And we are having them upload the EEG to our server and analyze it here. So basically to go towards a, um, a setup where you can actually scale this better and then to make this um, as sort of scalable as possible. We also shared all of our protocols. We shared our code basically that we use to analyze these data immediately with the publication of the papers so that, you know, we can, you know, multiply this and potentially um, have a bigger impact. Is that one of the benefits of making the code open source that it actually makes it more standardized if people are using the same code to analyze their data as you did for yours? Exactly, because otherwise they would try try to copy, I mean, to come up with something similar, but then maybe we have different results and maybe it's because the code is different. So as, as much as you use the same technology, uh, the more that people do that, the more likely it is that they will get the same results. Tell me more about that, because it seems you're very passionate about, you know, making things equitable and making sure that the research you're doing is scalable and not just available in elite research settings. So I, I think it is... As researchers, I think it's incredibly important to think about not just what you can do at your place, but what the bigger impact can be. A huge number of patients worldwide have disorders of consciousness. Um, trauma is very prevalent no matter where you go in, in the world. So we, in 2019, after um, the paper was published, um, I got together with um, investigators uh, through the Neurocritical Care Society and we um, developed this Curing Coma campaign. Hmm. And it's a worldwide campaign now involving um, scientists from all over the world. And um, we're working one on, for example, doing a study like covert consciousness detection in a, in a broader scale. And so what I think is important that we think about innovative ways of using what we already have, because we have a lot of technology. Mm -hmm. So you can, for example, um, analyze an, a CT image that somebody obtains in California in real time here in New York. You have to think about what is the minimum technological need that, uh, that, that, that is required hmm. to obtain your data. And then how can you democratize um, your analytics and share that with everybody, while at the same time, you assure quality of the data. So part of that can be then obtained with protocols that are rigorously developed in, for the acquisition, and then standardization of the analysis that can be potentially even done remotely. Gotcha. 
so it's been about four years. How do these findings affect the way you address either the patient or the family now that you suspect that up to 15% of these people may actually have some degree of consciousness? So if you think about the, the the most important thing is at the bedside, you should always assume that your patient is conscious uh-huh. because you can't tell. I think that's a very, very important um, uh, lesson from this that I share always with um, with my trainees that you have to assume that the patient is conscious. When you go back to the bedside, very often families ask, so what shall we do when we're in the room? Mm. And I always tell them, just assume that, you know, your loved one uh, fully understands you. If if the person enjoys music, play them some music. I always tell families, tell them what's going on at home. Have them take part in 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 your life. Obviously, don't tell them something super stressful because <laughs> the last thing they need is another stressor. But share share you know make them make them feel that they haven't lost that connection. And that's I think that is built on these quality of life assessments that we have from patients in locked in syndrome, which which granted is a different condition. But um, what ultimately what we would love to do is we would love to build a um, communication bridge back to these patients. So they are mm-hmm. basically you have to imagine they are locked in there in this in this state. They are in this state where they are in covert consciousness. They have no way of communicating with the outside environment, no way of sharing their feelings, their fears, their even their pain. Right? They can't even ask for pain medication, and so. Um, so I think ultimately it would be fantastic if we could build some communication bridges with them. That is super, super difficult to do. The, the reason I think it's so important is from the locked in patients, we know that if they actually have ways of expressing themselves, their quality of life is much better, right? How can we sort of get to that communication strategy? So I think where you're going with this is the brain computer interface that you're working on, right? Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so... So a brain-computer inter- interface, fundamentally, right? So you you present the patient with a task. You can okay. say, you know, uh, move a bar up or down on a computer screen. And you record a biological signal. And then the machine learning algorithm learns, in the computer basically learns what your brain activity or some other biological signal looks like when you're trying to engage in this task. And once it's learned that, actually that biological signal alone is enough to drive the computer. Wow. So you can have patients, for example, play a game. Do you remember this Pong game where you just move the bar up and down? Very like, (laughs) I think that was the first computer game or so. Right. And so... Um, patients can actually play that game with just by thinking about it, right? Wow. So obviously it is what we would want to do is now take this and use it in patients with covert consciousness. And we're very far away from that. And the question remains, even if we are able to connect to them, are they in a state that they can actually engage in any meaningful interaction with the environment? Mm-hmm. And ideally, they would be able to direct their pain medications. Could they even engage in um, in any conversation or interaction with their loved ones? I think that would be probably the most meaningful, meaningful thing. Okay. Whether they can really learn to systematically activate your <clears throat> brain activity in a predictable way that the computer can learn it. It's really an open question. We don't know that. We have some patients that we've studied that are behaviorally unresponsive that have 
shown responses that are more than just chance. That gives us hope that we can potentially, you know, dig into that and utilize that signal to, 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 to move towards something where it becomes meaningful. I see. Okay. I mean, that makes me wonder about your vision for the future. Like if you were able to look ahead five or 10 years, what would you hope we might know about disorders of consciousness that we don't know right now? And then also, what might we be able to do that we currently can't do? One of the things I would hope that we become more precise and accurate in our predictions. In some ways, it's almost like personalized medicine that every patient is different and you take into account all of the factors that influence outcome and that we could come up with a more precise uh, long-term prediction. I remember when I first started training, my uh, the senior physician said in patients with traumatic brain injury that if somebody hadn't recovered within a day or two, that there was no chance of recovery. We mm. know now that patients recover beyond one year after the injury, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, the scale is just completely off. And so the, um, the expectations when some, somebody should show recovery um, needs to be reset. The other thing is that I hope that we um, will be able to connect to those patients as we talked about the brain-computer interface. And mm-hmm. then maybe most importantly, that we will be able to actively support their recovery. And I think one important um, aspect that I really enjoy a lot is also engaging with non-scientists about this. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I just tell you one experience that I had during the COVID pandemic. I uh, gave a talk in my son's um, high school philosophy class because they asked <laughs> me to talk about consciousness. And I tell you sometimes from people that are, I want to say, not burdened by all the scientific knowledge, sometimes <laughs> the best questions come from them. Do you remember any of those specific questions? Um, they basically asked very fundamental questions about what consciousness is to begin with. Uh-huh. And, you know, in my mind, that's like it's such a big question. I mean, what, what are we doing here? So I think it's, it's very, very helpful and meaningful to, to sort of to, to talk to people that don't have that much scientific knowledge yet. Uh-huh. And I, I just enjoy that a lot. And I think that's, uh, that's also something that I hope will, people will embrace and um, integrate into their thinking. Wow. So much that we don't know. Yeah. Exactly. Great. Well, thank you so much. This is fascinating. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> so many thanks to Dr. Jan Claussen for taking the time to speak with us on this fascinating and philosophical topic. I'm Catherine Price. Advances in Care is a production of New York Presbyterian Hospital. As a reminder, the views expressed in this podcast solely reflect the expertise and experience of our guests. To find more amazing stories about the pioneering physicians at New York Presbyterian, go to nyp.org advances. <laughs>